Heavenly Features is brought to you by 18 Maiden Lane Productions. Content warning for this episode, we talk about terrorism and suicide. Hello and welcome to Heavenly Features, a weekly podcast where myself, Sophie, and my friend Kim... Hey, how's it going? Uh, ...get together every week to talk about two films that we have watched um, and recommended to each other. This week we are still fully in the throes of uh, the festive season and enjoying lots of wintry treats. Um, so Kim, what have you chosen for us to watch this week? Uh, okay, so for this week's film I chose, uh, in my opinion, a Christmas classic. Uh, the 1988 film Die Hard, based on the book by Roderick Thorpe, uh, written by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza and directed by John Matiran. Uh, So this stars Bruce Willis, Bonnie Belinda and Alan Rickman. Uh, So Die Hard is about a New York cop, John McClane, played by Bruce Willis, whose estranged wife, Holly, played by Bonnie Belinda, uh, has taken a job in LA, moving there with their two young children, leaving John back in New York. Um, So John is travelling to LA to spend Christmas with his family, and John turns up to his wife's company's Christmas party, where Hans Gruber and his team lock down Nakatomi Plaza and take all of the people left in the building hostage in a meticulously thought-out plan in order to seal $640 million. However, the one thing that they didn't plan for was John McClane. So it's an action-packed film where we see John use every bit of his training and survival instinct to foil Hans's plan and save the day. Uh, So it is a film full of action, excitement and (laughs) amazing catchphrases. Uh, So I chose this film because although it isn't what you would call a traditional Christmas film, it takes place on Christmas Eve and... uh, Although there are probably more guns, explosions and blood than you'd think of at Christmas. Uh, I used to watch this every Christmas. Uh, I was very happy to revisit this and it does make me feel very Christmassy. Uh, for me, yippee ki motherfuckers is kind of the same as the Coke advert uh, where you see it or you hear it and uh, it just signals the beginning of Christmas. Uh, so, Soph, what uh, side of the debate do you lie on? Is this a Christmas classic film, or do you think it has no place being labelled a Christmas classic at all? Well, I think it really comes down to, you know, is it set in and around Christmas, and do you enjoy it? Because not everyone's going to enjoy watching the more kind of wholesome um, films. People, you know, if you really like a action-packed adventure, normally you watch those sorts of films all the time, then it only seems natural that uh, you would want to watch a Christmas-themed version of that kind of film. And really, it's no surprise that they did this in the the era that it did, in 1988, which is actually a year before we were both born. Yes. Um, (laughs) uh, But that was like the era of the big action movie stars and movies. Um, So it's not a surprise that they they did that, that in that time. But I also think even if they hadn't, it would have been done at some point. I mean, Hallmark and uh, Lifetime have have made so many films about every possible thing. I'm sure they would have got around to like some kind of action movie that was set at Christmas. Die Hard just got there earlier. So, I mean, is it one that I watch every year? Personally, no. Uh, But in all fairness, I didn't grow up watching it. Uh, The first time I watched it was only a couple of years ago. 
So that might also have a huge impact as to why I maybe don't connect to this film in in the same way that I might others. But it's a good film. It's it's, it's fun. It certainly keeps your attention all the way through. Um, There's lots of uh, likeable and interesting characters. And, uh, yeah, I think it's Christmassy enough. They do enough to try and remind you it's Christmas all the time by having uh, the occasional... Um, you know, Santa hat or Christmas tree or lights up um, or even just like Alan Rickman humming uh, a Christmas carol <laughs> yes. in uh, in the in the elevator in the lift. So I, I they do their best to keep reminding you of you know that reason, and it, it's a good reason for trying to show how uh, why first of all. Um, this estranged couple are coming together at this, you know, it gives a reason that they're coming together for the holidays. Um, but it also kind of then helps that payoff by the end. But in many ways, although this is an, an action film, I kind of regard it also as a bit of a, a romantic film because it is all about will the couple get back together. Oh, 100%. And I think that they played it very well. Um, I think that they really showed the... The, the couple sort of tiptoeing around each other, like obviously John McClane's not sure where he's going to be staying, and then Holly's there, not sure where she's where he's going to be staying, and like they have that sort of cute like tiptoeing around each other, not really sure how to act um, mm. scene, which I just I think it really shows their sort of new newfound separation, not really sure how to behave around each other, not really sure what the boundaries are, well, especially because it's really clear that there's still anger on both sides at each other and so there's that bubbling away but there's also the excitement of being reunited and the gesture that he is he has come out to visit them especially when he's scared of flying well exactly so it's important to see that this is a complicated relationship and that's probably why they are they are not currently together is and, and why then by the end after everything they've gone through how he has fought not only for the um you know for his own safety but for the safety of his mainly probably his wife, plus everybody else that is there. He has done that, and that's brought them together because he's shown up for her and essentially their family in ways that perhaps he hadn't shown up previously. And yeah. So you can see why they reconnect. You can see why they might think, you know what, these are these are petty little arguments that we are having. Um, we need to think about the big thing, which is the fact that we love each other, we want to reconnect. Yeah. You can see how that gets paid off by the end because of where they start, where they're in this kind of tortured moment. Yeah, that's that's true. And I also I love that um Holly says, Oh, he's still alive and she knows because uh she says that no one can make anyone as angry as John can. Like no one can make anyone as angry as that. Like <laughs> only John. I was like, Yes, okay. Like it shows it shows that there's obviously a lot of like issues between them, but they know each other inside out. They clearly have a deep love for each other. They just need to find mm. their way back to working as a couple. But I like that it's like, it's romantic, but not mushy. Yes. And it's it, the romanticism is also very um, practical. And um, you don't really see that much kind of soppiness from them at all. They just reunite at the end. They're happy to be together. But they, they didn't have a big mushy scene or anything like that. No. He didn't have to, like, uh, specifically defend her or anything like that, which, which a lesser movie might have done. Yes. It's more about her recognising everything that he has done and he's gone through and her, therefore, 
realizing probably also because she's also in a situation which could be a life or death situation for her what are the things that she truly values and she obviously therefore realizes that she truly values her husband and also sacrifices the commitments that he's currently making at protecting her yeah and i love that she's not like a damsel in distress throughout the whole film mm, yeah in fact she's very calculating in many ways yeah um trying to herself also trying to protect him so uh though through protecting him she's also kind of protecting herself but it, it kind of <laughs> it makes sense but um it, it yeah it's it's well crafted in that way we can see how they might have got to this point and and what that needs to happen to try and bring them back together yeah absolutely and i think that they do it in such a way that your your attention is never fully focused on just one aspect of the story like mm. it's done in such a way where it, like you're you're you constantly are involved in the whole picture so mm. you're constantly thinking yeah. about all of it whereas so you're not just like oh here this is this bit of action that's going on which can happen in some yeah. action movies whereas with this one i think it's got such an underlying foundation of of just a good like solid start that you're you're constantly thinking of the emotions throughout it. I think that uh, because John McClane, the way he's presented and the fact that he is played by Bruce Willis and not you know John Van, what's his name? Jean Claude Van Damme. Jean Claude Van Damme. <laughs> See, I was I was I'm clearly not an action buff. You know those those kind of 1980s action stars. If they had somebody like them playing this role, it wouldn't have seemed so genuine, and you wouldn't. I don't think you would have followed the story in the same way. But Bruce Willis, particularly Bruce Willis at that time where he was better known for romantic comedies or comedies on, on screen and on TV, he very much comes across as the everyday man who also has an, in, his, in his arsenal uh, policeman's training. Yes. And using the combination of those two skills, he seems like somebody who the best of us could possibly do what he does in some way. Yeah, he, he's um, very relatable. Do you know what I mean? He's re- yeah, exactly. He what he does, although risky and dangerous, and in some ways very skilled, some of what he does, is not totally out of the reach of what an, an average person may be able to achieve. Yeah, and therefore you're more invested. And even just the way that he navigates around the building, um, it very it seems very realistic. And how you would be kind of walking around trying to hide yourself in vents and get around using different ways to distract using the, this is a construction site, which obviously has so many opportunities to have have deadly weapons just lying around. Yeah. And you can also blow the place to shit and it doesn't matter because it's not constructed very well. Yeah, it, and also the fact that he knows that the whole building's empty apart from that one floor. Yeah. So he... he means he can do whatever he wants. He can go wherever he wants, do whatever he wants, like, without risking innocent lives. Exactly. So he's, he, he essentially is using the building to trap um, each of the terrorists, ideally one by one, and then eliminating them. Yes. And But you, the way is, is, I just find it incredibly interesting, more interesting than perhaps one of those big action star kind of films, because you could imagine uh, anybody kind of doing that. And then punctu- punctuated into all of this, You've got all this high action happening, this drama, this tense, these tense emotions happening. You have Ar- is it Argyle? Yes. Who's sitting down in the limo, having a great old time in that limo, completely oblivious to what's going on. Completely like... oblivious to what's going on, and it it provides that comic relief. Though I do have a question mm-hmm. because they bring the van in to the underground section right at the beginning, get out, and then 
go and go about their business. And he's got the music on. Did they not hear him in the car Maybe park? it's a soundproof <laughs> limo. I, I, Is that a floor I've just found on the store? It might, it might be, yeah. So basically they should have killed Argyle from the get-go. But maybe... Maybe they didn't hear it because it wasn't overly loud. And obviously you couldn't see him because of the blacked out windows of the limit. Or maybe maybe he didn't have the music on then. But yeah. because the building wasn't shut, he didn't think of anything of seeing a van come in and people walk out. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe. And they did it but... They did it in such a way that you wouldn't be like yeah. worried no, by definitely. the people coming in and out. Like they, they walked in like they were meant to be there, which is the way to yeah. get into any building. <laughs> like have the confidence you've got to have that little swagger or else you'll be stopped (laughs) and one other theme that confused me and i'd like to kind of get your opinion on is i think a lot of it it completely makes sense and particularly at the beginning of the story uh the terrorists have arrived uh john mclean is running around trying to think of ways to um get support get help he tries you know calling and realizes they've cut the telephone line Mm -hmm. and things like that he looks out the window and he sees a woman across the street in an apartment, mm-hmm. but he doesn't do anything to try and get grab her attention. And that always kind of kind of f- confused me because you'd think that he could maybe find a way of doing something where maybe he broke a window and threw something out or did something, maybe even like shot at something, not obviously her, uh, but shot at something <laughs> where it was gone. I mean, that would get her attention. Yeah, garner the attention and then she could have called the police. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That happens so early in the story and it's never really addressed. He looks out the window, they linger on it and then it's never addressed again. And I just wondered about why that was included. Yeah, it is It is slightly weird. I don't know, maybe, I mean, maybe he, he tried to get her attention and they cut that bit or maybe... Yeah, he possibly. couldn't figure out how to get her attention, but then the police show up. I don't know. I I just wondered. I don't. I'd only noticed it this time, and it. I thought, I've seen this film before, and I'm sure it doesn't come back to it. I carried on watching, and it obviously didn't come back to it. She never appears in any other part. She's on the phone or something, walking around. Maybe it just shows and... that the the phones aren't down in the whole city. It's just in the yeah. Maybe, maybe that's what it's meant to be, but it's not as obvious. No. I just found it Maybe it was just a, like, oh, he's easily distracted. Look at him as soon as there's a beautiful woman walking around. Maybe. I don't (laughs) don't know. I mean, I am nitpicking. It's a great film, and I'm just asking about one tiny minor detail. As if you nitpick. (laughs) Well, it's never been happened before. I would never do such a thing. Um... (laughs) Um, I, yeah, I I can't answer that, that question, I'm afraid, but it's... Yeah, it's something that I didn't even think about. So if anybody has any opinion, I would love to hear. Yeah, me too, actually. About what would... you think that scene is about. Please go over to um, Instagram forward slash Heavenly Features Pod and have a look at um, one of the posts uh, regarding this episode, regarding um, Die Hard. And please do comment on there what you think is that scene is about. Because I would be really interested... If there is a legitimate reason that I've missed, I would like to know what it is. Maybe it's been discussed by other people. Or I would like to get your opinion on what you think. Or am I nitpicking and it means absolutely nothing and I need to get on with my life? Feel free Possibly to tell her to one. get on with her life. Uh, yeah, but actually, um, I would I would be interested. <laughs> like, you always do this to me. <laughs> you always, like, throw these little things in that then I'm like... Huh. Because I overthink things. Yeah. Um, and it probably means absolutely nothing. I do think that 
other than, other than that section, they used they used everything around them so well for this. Mm. Like, and obviously, obviously, the the like Alan Rickman had thought of everything. Hans Gruber had thought of everything so well. Like, it shows well, the highly intelligent criminals. I was about to say. I mean, since we can't be crushing on some girls because there really aren't that many in the story, and they don't they're not on screen long enough. And the only one that really is uh, is a love interest to a man. So uh, because of that, yeah, we kind of have fail, to focus on the amazing, <laughs> yeah, the amazing campness of Alan Rickman. Because I think this is a very camp role for him. It's not like traditionally camp, but it's so like melodramatically over the top, ridiculous. Yes. In a, but in a subtle way. Yes. Do you know what I mean? 100%. Like, I mean, I love Alan Rickman anyway. And one of the first times um, I was kind of introduced to this film, obviously I'd heard of it, but I'd never watched it was uh, shortly after his passing, we did, um, me and my, some of my friends did a Alan Rickman movie night and dressed up as some of the characters and one of Who our friends. Who did you dress up as? I dressed up as the voice of God from Dogma. Of course you <laughs> the, fucking did. I can't remember, of course I can't remember you his did. name. Can't remember his name. But of course I did because I was obsessed with that film as a teenager. Yep. So. Uh... That and Ginger <laughs> Snaps was on repeat. <laughs> yes. I got half a stock when she hugged me. <laughs> oh God, I could go through and quote it all. Um, but uh, so of course I went as the Metatron, I think his actual official name is. Uh, the voice of God. Um, but one of our friends went as Hans Gruber. And then one of my other friends went as Snape. So it was a wide berth of his different um, roles, like lots of different options. So that was one of the first times I was like really kind of introduced to his character. I hadn't really seen the film yet. But that was, yeah, it was good. But he, his, obviously he has a very distinctive um, voice and, and performance and the way that he kind of has a very controlled way of talking and kind of processing information delivering information is really effective particularly in this film i think i agree especially i think it it goes so well with his character like obviously everything's meticulous everything's been thought through everything's set a certain way like down to down to the uh, time it takes for the fbi to get into place time like for everything mm. everything is so thought through like it's incredible the amount of planning that's obviously gone into it and he's yeah, he's he would have nailed it if John McClane hadn't been in that building. Yes, like, it's bad luck for him, really. Super bad luck. Like, I wonder yeah. if anyone would have been, like, what was the outcome? Were they going to kill everyone to get away with everything? No, or they were just... I don't think so. I reckon they were either going to put them in a space where they couldn't easily get out, at least until they'd left. So mm. maybe lock them in a room, or they would have tied them up, or they would. You know what I mean? I think I don't think they would have gone around and killed them all. I yeah. don't think they would care to waste their bullets. No, but they, they were going to blow money. up the tower. Like, they had that amount in they the were. C4. So were they going to do it with everyone in there? Oh, yeah, because didn't they say at one point, like, they'd by the time they'd sort, sorted through the remains, or am I th- confusing that? Have I just made that section up? I think there was, yeah, I think you're right, when they were talking about blowing up the tower at the end and they were going to escape on the helicopter or whatever it was, that I think they did say in a passing remark that they didn't really care about the people in the building. Yeah. So 640 million is... A lot of money. Well, it is a commentary, isn't it, on, like, what's more important, money or life? Well, that's one thing that is interesting about this, is is that John McClane seems so disappointed and in, in Hans Gruber when it turns out he's just a common thief, not a terrorist. Not a terrorist. Which, which mm. does kind of open up that, that thought process and that question of, obviously, terrorism is terrible, but yeah. is it worse to 
just do something for your purely your own gain because at least with terrorism usually it's it's like political gain and for something you really believe in yeah you have a really strong belief and you'll do anything for that belief not that i'm justifying the means that people use oh, God, to, no. to no, do no, no, that no. but you know you could it almost in some ways can come across as at least being a little more noble than being what is essentially a petty thief yeah absolutely for some people because at least you're doing something that you fully believe in. And it's not just... For, uh, it's, it's odd because obviously the atrocities that, that can come of that is horrific. But I think to, for John McClane, I think perhaps maybe he can respect it more if you're doing it because you have a certain belief that you want to get across. But you're just there and you're, you're killing people. You're, you're wasting life. You're being careless about people's safety just because you want a bit of money purely for your own selfish financial gain exactly it i mean in many ways it's like hans gruber is a capitalist and in some ways and this is shocking because it's america um john, john mcclain is more socialist he cares more about the people than he cares about the money yes but he does do it with guns so you know it's still america oh well there is that <laughs> yes um definitely so yeah i don't know it's just I thought it was kind of kind of interesting. Yeah, definitely. Like the motivations behind it and, and how you're right. He seemed disappointed because it didn't seem as perhaps a, no, a noble enough reason to be doing what they were doing. Which I kind of get. Um, like if you're, if you're going to hold people captive and do this elaborate plan to better the world, in your opinion... Yeah. That's one thing. But if you do all of that to put so many people's lives at dan in danger, potentially kill however many people for you to get away with not having to work, basically, for you well, to be rich. Yeah, because I think that what I, maybe I missed this, but there is, from what I understand, this is not some form of revenge against this company or any mm -hmm. kind of, there's nothing there that seems to suggest it. So why not a bank? Yeah. Why not somewhere where... Yes, unfortunately, you might kill a few security guards or a few people who are a night watchman or whatever it is, but you're not holding hostage a lot of people. But then do they want the hostage to have more of a bartering factor with the police? I think... Because people, the police are not going to storm in if they think they might harm the hostages. Yeah, because, because they needed the FBI to be... They needed to get everything done in a certain amount of time so that when the FBI turn up... They've gotten through the rest of the doors into the safe so that the FBI kill the power so they can get into the last door because the FBI always do yeah. the same play, according to yeah. Hans Gruber. Obviously, I'm not saying that the FBI do that in real life. I'm not an expert. but Really? Um, well, you know, I wish I was more like Hans Gruber, but, um, but also I don't think if you went to a bank, you would get $640 million. And obviously... 640 million is at firstly a shit ton of money but also this that's mm. a, in 1988 is even more true like, and it probably would have been more diff nowadays i don't know if hans gruber would have gone to all this effort i think he would be an online hacker so true because <laughs> he's so organized and i reckon with the right team he could get the right people to, to do it which he clearly gets the team uh, like he can get a team exactly. of experts around him so yeah well to be honest i think a lot of the heavy lifting is i don't know many of their names is done by the guy who's hacking into the safe yes yes and he then does most of it and the then dirty the Aryan brotherhood the yes <laughs> <laughs> are doing the rest yes yes um so I read, so I was looking it up because I was like, well, you know, you know how like The Sound of Music was edited heavily for release in Germany? Yes. So it didn't have like a lot of the stuff about the Nazis for a really long time in there. Understandably, it was a bit fresh. But um, apparently in for this one, obviously they didn't want the terrorists to be 
German. I'm assuming they did German terrorists because uh, perhaps like culturally or in the, in the mind's eye, there's still this connection with these kind of brutal, this brutalized um, kind of well, Aryan Brotherhood kind of Nazi kind of references. I'm assuming is what's being made. Highly uh, intelligent leader, yes. charismatic leader. Exactly. So it's got all of these ideas going on there. But of course, for release in Germany, that's not going to work. So apparently, they, I could be wrong here, but I read this online, they made them Irish terror- terrorists. Well, that makes in sense Germany. in the 80s. It did, but uh, then it doesn't make sense because Hans Gruber, first of all, um, I think they changed some of their names, but it doesn't make sense, I think, in later films where I think Hans Gruber is specifically mentioned as being German. <laughs> And they've just like kept that in. Well, we'll just ignore so... that. Um, yeah. yeah. Gee, I did um, not. I did not realize they made them Irish. Did they do like? Yeah. Did they dub over with Irish accents? Well, I'm assuming it's all in German. Well, yes, but did I mean it's all in English for us, and it's with German accent. Well, that's true. I don't know what a German Irish accent sounds like, but no, I'm but that's intrigued. why I was asking because I really want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that exists or not. Um, so one thing I also wanted to ask you was quite a significant thing because I felt this was not necessarily a plot hole but certainly unbelievable enough for the action to continue in the way that it did. Did you feel like Alan Rickman did a competent American accent? Because personally I didn't. Uh, Look. If you were an American would you believe that that was another American person talking to you? Because to me it very much sounds like someone pretending to be American. Yeah, I I didn't quite understand how John McClane fell for it for so long. Like... It, I mean, he obviously, in some ways, he I don't know if he fully did, because obviously he didn't load the gun. No, but he did, he fell for it enough, because if you look at the... When he looks at the uh, names, and he says, oh, what's your name? And it's, he looks at the list of names. Yeah. So is that... Is, I, I took it as that being when he realised... But he's just cautious and doesn't give the loaded gun just because he's cautious. Yeah, or maybe he just knew the whole time and was just like... I don't know. Because from what I understand, that was like why they went in that direction because they were conv- they were convinced by Anna Rickman's accent that they could have him pretend to be an American and John McClane would believe it. But I thought it just... And I liked it because I think Alan Rickman is a very talented actor or was a very talented actor. Um, and so I like to think of it being... I I like to think of it being super meta that he is a German person pretending to do an American accent and that's why it doesn't sound fully like an American accent rather than Alan Rickman can't do an American accent. (laughs) Well, has he done done American accents in other films? Yes, and he was better. Well, so yeah, I think it probably was... But this is his first film, so I don't know if he just was inexperienced by this point of doing that No, he came out of the womb perfect. Well, of course. Um, <laughs> therefore, I'd like to think that it's like true to the story that it's very much a German person pretending to do an American accent, mm-hmm. which is why it sounds slightly off. Yeah. But you didn't find it convincing either. Oh, no, not at all. Thank God. <laughs> no. I thought we were meant to, and I was like, really? Because I do, well, actually, I probably don't do a better American accent than. than um, I Hans really does, want but... to ask you to do one right now. <laughs> I really can't. All I can like do is like really bad 
like valley girl which is really not that hard um and even then i don't think it's that great um no, i think i think alan did a better job exactly so who am i to criticize you but... would have just gotten shot in the head by john oh i know what about your american oh, accent? i can't i cannot do accents to save my life like my accent changes depending on who i'm talking to but i cannot put an accent on like i can't even put my own accent on no, I'm I'm very much the same. The only thing I can do is I can sound a little bit more posh if I really want to, but it's not the way that I normally speak. But I can put on a posher sound if I want to. Uh, but normally I don't talk. I talk like this. Yeah, I, <laughs> um, whereas, I, go on. Sorry. Yeah, no. But so you um, very much depending on who you're talking to or what country you're in. <laughs> um, but not not in an offensive way. But like when you're in Australia, you sound way more Australian. Yeah. And when you live in Ireland, you sound more Irish. And then when you live in the UK, you sound more uh, English. Yeah. Uh, weirdly enough, living in France, you don't sound more French. Well, but... in fairness, <laughs> I, I haven't hung out with a huge amount of French people. Like a few, but not a huge amount. So I think that's probably... Uh, yeah. Like my next door neighbour also... here is German, so... The other countries, you're doing a variation of English, whereas yes. France is, is, is another language. That's so unless true. you want to offend them by putting on a thick French no, accent, yeah. but speaking in English... Probably best not to. One thing I will say about uh, this film is the scumbag of a reporter. And I know he's under pressure because he's like trying to climb up the ladder. But going to the house to basically interview two very young children on Christmas Eve and saying like, oh, they might not ever see their parents again. Like, what do you want to say? And also threatening the nanny immigration with immigration i was like you heap of shit yeah i mean it's completely inexcusable do you think that this was just like trying to portray it realistically or do you think that the filmmakers were trying to make a point i think i think both i think they were trying to make a point but also it is very realistic um because i know when a friend of mine uh passed away reporters turned up at all of her friends houses knocking at the door Mm. like straight away trying to get like media bites and i was just like that's so fucked up so it's it's very realistic that they would go out of their way to do whatever but that was just so scumbaggy but also i love that holly then punches him in the face at the end yes it's like yes holly but also like how traumatizing for those children to be told that their parents are basically going to die and what are you going to say to them? Yeah. And then that is also used um, for Hans Gruber to then be able to identify who their parents are. Which and could have put them at what, serious risk. Which actually could have killed them. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's just, it's just a dick move and it could have messed up the whole thing. But yeah, I do love that Holly gets her revenge and punches him in the face. Especially, yeah, like, definitely. I'm a big fan of Bonnie Belinda anyway. I think she is incredible. Like, See, she... I don't think I've seen her in anything else. Okay, I know I've spoken to you before about the TV show Parenthood. Uh, because yeah. it's one of my all-time favourites. So she is the mum, like, the well, the grandmother and mum in that. Okay. And she's just the most beautiful person inside and out in that, in that uh, show. So I like I love her from that. Uh, so as soon as I see her in this, I'm just like, yes, go for it, punch him. <laughs> Fair enough. But I do love that she plays like a smart, 
badass in this like yeah she's not the damsel in distress which she's so could easily have been written as yeah absolutely especially because it was written by all men yeah it's a very male heavy story yeah absolutely but at least they didn't make her like a dumb ditzy damsel like they made her have a great career made her be important in the office made her like be the boss to a lot of the men made her badass that also also kind of shows why this rift has happened in their marriage because she obviously she has to go for this job she's perfect for it she's a very talented person and she shouldn't be held back in her career because of her family life and that's why she's made the choice and you can see why she wants to pursue that passion um not sure she's got a job at the end of this because her boss was killed but she'll just take over (laughs) oh that's true that's true and also the the Um, smarmy sleazy guy that was constantly coming on to her was also you know so at least it'll be a less toxic work environment (laughs) exactly well yeah (laughs) to be honest the most toxic thing is probably having um a terrorist incident at your workplace also can i just ask like is it just me, or is it a little bit rude for your company to expect you to go to this, like, staff Christmas do on Christmas Eve? This is, right, not only is it Christmas Eve, like, after they've clearly done a full day of work. Yes. Like, usually in offices, don't, I mean, I don't know, I've never worked in an office, but from what I've been told, normally you finish at, like, half, you have, like, half a day on Christmas Eve. Or you, Eve. like, sneak out at, like, three o'clock, four o'clock. Go home a little bit early. Maybe you go to the pub after work. Yeah, but not like do, a it's fucking full-on mandatory Christmas party. Exactly. Be like... I felt like that was rude. Yeah. In fact, I felt like that was the rudest thing, more so than the, than the <laughs> thieves. Um, Hans, Gru- Hans Gruber is actually the hero of this story. <laughs> he was just trying to break up the party. So... <laughs> Come on. I mean... I just, I just feel like, you know, work-life balance, people, we need to get that in place. Yes, I agree. Now, one, one <laughs> person I do want to quickly talk about, the cop. So, yes. other than, obviously, destroying his car, he was such a great cop through this. And I love the fact that they showed so many quite crappy police and FBI agents like, they weren't all the the best, uh, so it wasn't, like... It could have been so police-heavy in the, like, yay, these are, you know, America's finest and, like, the best and the brightest, um, but it didn't do that. Because, obviously, John McClane's a cop, and he's the hero of the whole film, but it could have been very much, like, every cop that shows up is a hero, but they didn't do it like that. But they did make Sergeant Al Pal, like, an incredible presence. I think that he's really important as a character because he is the one on the other side that is uh, believing in him, believing in John McClane, believing that he can do it, working out who he is and how he's surviving, how he's kind of taking down all these, um, well, terrorists, basically. They may be thieves, but they're also really terrorists because they are creating terror. Um, Just not for political gain. Just not for political gain. But... It's interesting because it makes it more dynamic as a plot and, and less uh, kind of shallow as a story to have him not only fighting against the terrorists inside, but fighting against the bureaucracy and, in many ways, the, the good guys on the outside who don't believe in him, who don't want to kind of support him and help him, him in, in the way 
that he needs it to be able to defeat uh, the terrorists. And so to have this one cop, this cop who, again, is an everyday man, just like John McClane is in yeah. many ways, um, very relatable, who is able to both spur on uh, John McClane with, uh, you know, fighting, fighting the baddies, um, but is also trying to uh, work out what's going on, support him, uh, get the police on the ground to listen to what he's saying so that John McClane doesn't have to fight against the FBI, doesn't have to fight against the police. He has them on his side. But really, he's only got this one guy on his side. And the fact that he is somebody who is essentially almost, almost like basically an office job kind of... Well, yeah, Policeman, yeah. He said because... he said after his his mistake of shooting a kid, he has his own trauma. He, yeah. he couldn't do it anymore, which is why it's such a a huge moment when he shoots the terrorist at the end. Yeah, to, and saves John McClane and Bonnie Belinda. No, Holly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he obviously has a really pivotal role in the, in the story, but it's 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 also interesting because I do find it fascinating to show that the pol- the police sometimes are incompetent or and also are... that they all they all were like oh i'm now in charge so we'll do it my way and yes. like and but i love then that all they're doing is following the book and fucking it up like i love that john mcclain yeah. says at one point when they're saying oh you know i'm in charge here and he goes oh it doesn't look like you're in charge from up here exactly and i'm just like yeah that's like that by them following the book without listening to the people who had been on the ground from the beginning, mm. they nearly messed the whole thing up. Like, they, they followed exactly what Hans Gruber wanted them to do. Exactly. If it wasn't for John McClane and for Al, mm. then they they probably would have gotten away with it a lot more. Yeah, and, and Argyle. Oh, yes, absolutely. Can't forget him. What a legend. Yeah. <laughs> Which I also love well, that they had two, in the 80s, two black men being part of the like heroes of this yeah so i really enjoyed uh revisiting this one so thank you for recommending it um of course there'll be lots of people that that watch it every single year and um i hope everyone's enjoying it this time of the year um but i hadn't seen it for a couple of years so i was definitely pleased to give it another rewatch yeah me too i i used to watch it every single year and then life happened and uh now I'm like, oh, I'm definitely going to get back into watching this every year. It's just, it does, it makes me feel like Christmas. It's like, oh, here yeah. we go. It's it started. You should put your tree up and, you know, put on Die Hard. So, <laughs> yeah, sure, I'm sure, very, I'm not? very glad that we watched it. Um, I'm glad that there's a Christmas movie for everyone as well, regardless of what genres you enjoy. Yes. Well, I mean, there is now that we've got a lot more queer movies coming our way as well. All right. Well, yeah, that was uh, that was my pick for this week. Uh, so, Soph, what was your pick? Oh, God, I'm back in the bloody 1940s again, guys. I'm in 1941 for <laughs> Meet John Doe by Fran- uh, Frank Capra. Um, this is a film that stars um, Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck. And it is quite a cynical film, really. We're going from, I guess both are quite cynical Christmas films. Uh, one about uh, terrorism slash thieves. Um, and this one is about um, a newspaper writer or columnist who gets fired. And um, as her parting gift, she writes this um, article about, or this column, um, which includes a letter that she's made up 
about somebody um, who is going to kill themselves on Christmas Eve because um, they are so upset with the injustices of the world. And she signs it John Doe. And this gains uh, a lot of traction, a lot of attention um, across the city of New York, which is where it's set. And uh, so the newspaper bring her in to continue this because they've got their readership up. Um, she gets her job back and she therefore has to create this this farce, this um, kind of fakery of this John Doe character who wants to put the world to rights. And through that, she auditions to find someone who to actually represent John Doe. And that's where she finds um, Gary Cooper's character and he takes on that name. And he is a uh, very kind of a gentle man who's just like traveling around with his friend who wants to get back into baseball and is looking to make some money to have an operation so he can fix an injury and he takes on this role and it becomes a movement people believe in John Doe and in his standing up against the injustices of the world um, but they're also intrigued by his um, kind of claim that he is going to take his life on Christmas Eve but it becomes a political movement. It becomes a movement where people start wanting to be better to their neighbours, wanting to create these groups where they um, help each other out. And he becomes this figurehead um, and it all kind of leads to a kind of tumultuous end, which I'm not going to spoil um, at this point. Um, but uh, where we don't know, um, you know, who is it revealed who he is? Uh, will he take his life? What happens? Does he have to end up having this romance with Barbara Stanwood's character? Who knows? Um, but it's uh, an interesting film, I think. Not one I could watch every year because it's quite a dark film. Um, and you, every now and then you forget about the suicide aspect until they bring it up. And then you're like, wow, they really made a, a Christmas movie all about suicide um, or the threat thereof. Uh, but at the same time, it's Frank Capra, who, of course, also did It's Wonderful Life. Mrs. Smith Goes to Washington. Um, lots of um, uh, classic films that have a very similar sentiment across them all, uh, which is very much about kind of looking out for your fellow human and trying to be a better person um, and learning about the values of um, community and the, the friendships and bonds that you can have with each other. And it, that very much does come across in this movie. So it's very strange because it gives me all the feels. Um, it feels very Christmassy because that's the time of year that this is obviously set. And yet there's this really dark tone going through the story. So it's a bit, yeah, so it's a bit of an interesting one. And I was certainly um, uh, keen to understand kind of, or un see what you thought of it. Yeah, it absolutely. A, I mean, a different film. It's, yeah, it's not one I'd seen before. Uh, shockingly enough, you seem to choose a lot of, of those. And yeah, I mean, it for me, the main takeaway of the whole thing was how true to life it still is now. Having that, like, political and media hand-in-hand -hand rich cis straight white men um, <laughs> going hand-in-hand -hand and controlling the narrative and having full control and thinking that they can then from having that power and control because they've got the money they control the media they can change and become president 
of the United States, which look, we all know that people who shouldn't be president can do that. So yeah, I like I just found that fascinating to to see that played out in the forties. Yeah, well clearly it's it's been an issue that's that's been around for a while, this idea that what starts as well, in this case, actually, it kind of starts with a negative implication because it's all fake. But it turns into this real movement that people get behind. And that that is something that is unique and is cherished in, or should be cherished in the story, that people want to become better neighbours, want to come together. And yet that then is manipulated by the political powers that be who want to use that movement to kind of piggyback on, on, on it. Um, and therefore take power. Um, and it's very, it's very cynical. This is a Christmas film. It's very cynical. That's one actually question I have for you. So it's a Christmas movie. They obviously say that, uh, like they wrote the note saying that John Doe would die by suicide on Christmas Eve. And mm-hmm. in the whole lead up to Christmas, they, they're going to do all of these letters in the newspaper. Sure. Uh, what's the timeline of this film? Like how long? No idea. Because I was watching it thinking, okay, so we're like maybe a week or two before Christmas here. So when I started watching no, it's it, longer than that. And because th- I was like, oh, you know, why would you like? Why would you mention Christmas Eve if it's months and months away? And then, <laughs> and then he tours all of the United States. Like those flags yeah. pop up in every state, in most cities in every state. And I was like, okay, so you know that's going to take a few months. And then they arrange to have a convention. I'm like. I don't understand the timeline of this. Like, how long away is Christmas Eve? It's got to probably be at least six months, right? It has to. It has to be. Yeah, especially in the forties, traveling around America. Well, they would have been traveling by train, and so I I mean, it's it's interesting because obviously there are scenes where they're in different states, and I mean, parts of America are always sunny, pretty much. Doesn't matter what time of the year it's. Like, they don't have such a a season as other areas of the United States or other areas of the world, um, they can be quite warm. Oh yeah, like if you're in California rather than like Washington or whatever, like yeah. Exactly. So it's hard to work out what time of the year it is there because their their seasons don't necessarily change in the same way. So I was trying to work that out, but I was just thinking at the beginning of the story when she gets fired, when Barbara Stanwyck's character gets fired, um, it's definitely not the winter. So it must be at least six months. It does just seem like a weird choice to make from her point of view to make it Christmas Eve. I mean, I get it. It's like a big... The the whole thing is the message of Christmas, like, is then mm. put throughout the rest of the year, which I like. I think is great. Like, obviously not from the religious point of view for myself, but from the... Which they only bring in a little bit, which I, mm. I liked that they didn't bring it in too much. It was very much yeah. more about just how people can be kind to people and give each other a chance. Yeah, I think that's what I really like about this film. I really like the coming together of the the neighbourly support that is kind of brought out by this one figurehead who speaks up for the little people and tries to put the world to right. And it's not quite, although it starts cynically, although it starts in quite a kind of, morally unethical place um the fact that i always forget their names Anne. oh it's such a memorable name um and barbara sandwich <laughs> character um the fact that uh she starts basing um these letters on her late father's beliefs does ground the movie more does make her seem like a more appealing character 
And I think it helps the movement because it's kind of based on something rather than this kind of politically motivated um, message. I do like that they tried to keep politics out of it to a point. Like, and I don't, I don't mean yeah. like from my point of view, as in they actually said that in the film. Like, this is for just the generic everyday person. Um, mm. One thing I did find weird about the father aspect, though, is that she wrote John Doe, took her father's diary, used her father's words to make this man, basically, and then said, I've fallen mm. in love with this man I've created. Yes. I think, though, because I think it's meant to be that, obviously, she's created this man and she's found a, a man who does actually embody a lot of that because you see that um, John Doe, or Long John Willoughby, um, does, uh, <laughs> what a name, uh, does um, start to take on and believe in what he's talking about. But then they even, we they don't even know... throw in the father thing again with the dream that he has when John Doe has the dream where he's like, oh, I was your father and I was chasing you and then I was spanking you. Yes, that was weird. I was like, what the fuck? Look, it's the 1940s. Every film that I recommend from this era is going to have something that's a little bit weird that we go, <laughs> wouldn't be in a film nowadays, would it? But yeah, it's weird. There are some strange things in there. But I think it's that she finds an ideal man. And I think back then, there was much more of this emphasis on your perfect man will be just like your daddy. Um, and I think that's kind of what's going on here. Um, but from watching a lot of old films, that's certainly a sentiment that is in those more kind of those peachy coloured films, which, um, although this is quite a dark film, um, Frank Capra is very much a more of a sentimentalist. And so I could imagine him <laughs> putting that into his kind of stories. Yeah. Um, but it, it is a bit weird, like the whole falling in love with someone, you know, your perfect man, just like your daddy, is like, ooh, a bit weird. Uh, yeah, no, it, it, you're giving me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, you know what? This did give me a great new piece of slang that I'm totally using oh, wow. um, from now on. Heelot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the bloody heelot! There are a lot of heels! <laughs> Yeah, I, I fucking loved it. When he when he started saying it, I was like, "Huh? Say again?" What I know. Like, I love that he actually explained it because I was like, "Is this just an old phrase that I've never heard?" And it's like, "Oh no, this is made up." Yeah, he's the, you know these are a lot of heels. They're heelots. Yeah, they're just after you, after everything you've got, everything. They just take, take, take. Um, if you've got something, so it's better to have nothing and be happy which is so fucking socialist. I love it. Yes. Um, but also... <laughs> America, you don't see it that blatant very often. So <laughs> No, and it, 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 it did show the, again, the the people who have the least give the most. Like, yes. he had he had the 50 bucks and yeah. they said, oh, what are you going to do with it? He's like, I'm going to buy this and this and this and then give the rest away. And then the people who were... Yeah paid to be with them one of them was like oh i'm gonna come and like he's gonna give some away i must go and get some yeah and you're like come on it very man. much demonstrated the the greed yeah and that's what the movement was about was about moving away from kind of selfishness and greed and moving towards helping each other out yeah i particularly mean in times of need with, when he first learns about when he first learns about the um uh the impact that these societies have he learns about uh, so many circumstances where people had made up ideas about the people that they were living with in their community. They were a grouchy old man. They were 
rich and upper class and look down on everybody else. But once they looked a little bit closer, they realized that actually there were things getting in the way um, from them being able to kind of come together as a group. So the, you know, the grouchy old man, actually he's just a bit deaf and he doesn't ever notice you because he doesn't hear that you're there. Um, or, you know, the people that are looking down for you that always keep away, actually they're really impoverished and they're struggling and they yeah. need support and help and they want to be part of the community. And so I think that's the turning point in the story where Long John Willoughby um, starts <laughs> to become John Doe. He starts to embrace those um, messages that he has been saying before. I don't know how much he actually then contributes towards the speeches that are given. Well, he does. Um, he, he does say he doesn't more even. Impassioned. He doesn't even read them before he says them, yeah. which is how they were going to do the political movement at the end, basically corrupt yeah. the entire John Doe movement for their own selfish capitalist political Republican gains. Well, yes. Um <laughs> but I think I think well let more so than I don't know if they're necessarily meant to be Republican. I think they're just meant to be a political entity that's grabbing for power and but trying to take advantage of a of a goodwill movement and obviously benefits from kind of the kind of shattered dreams that the people would have once they realise that John Doe is not who he says he is. Which, yeah, is very much taking away from this great movement that where it did just bring a bit of joy to people and help each other and stop so much, so many people being impoverished. Like, it gave people jobs that needed jobs, which mm. that the government should be fucking doing that. And yet the government yeah. wanted to come in and take that away. Yeah, but that's because it's more about power rather than the good for the people. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the time. Um, and I have to admit, I really love Gary Cooper in these roles, these kind of gentle giant roles, where he is not too unbelievable, but he just seems really sincere and nice and lovely. Um, and he just wants to play baseball, damn it. And <laughs> which because there's no uh like universal health cover like universal health care he can't yeah yeah because he has to try and find the money to to you know sort out his injury but he, i just feel like although he comes to it and obviously they aren't originally his ideas he definitely embraces them and i think he believes in them and uh becomes a really good figurehead yes and also he's the only one that turns up to that uh, who wrote John Doe letter telling the truth off the bat. He, like, they ask every other one that, like, everyone else is like, I'm John Doe, I wrote that. And they said, did you write the letter? And he said, no. Yeah. And I just heard that there was some jobs going and I'm looking for a job. Yeah. So it shows from the get-go that he wasn't going into it to trick people, to deceive anyone, uh, or yeah, for, he's more for quick quick gain he just was like i want to work so i can get my life back on track he just embodied who who, who they needed in that moment one thing that i definitely loved in this and obviously in, in most of the films that i seem to recommend because they're all from the 1940s is those shoulder pads barbara <laughs> stanwick always look great in this film yes agreed but they just do a really good job of making her obviously look professional but really stylish as well, and they light her really well. The moment when she's uh, writing the original letter and they kind of do that light on the eyes, 
I was just so entranced. And it also really reminded me of Morticia Adams in the Adams Family Love films. It. Um, because she always has those eye, like the light on her eyes, whatever she's doing. Yeah. Um, but it just kind of was really illuminating and showed her passion and her interest in that moment. Um, I just thought there were like little details where it's like, oh, this elevates this film above just a normal kind of a somewhat competent film. This makes it much better than that because they thought about how they're filming some of these particular scenes. Oh yeah, it was. I thought it was filmed very well. Um, but the scene right at the end, where they're on the top of the mayoral building, just like ha- how it's kind of filmed, and it's so stark, and it almost looks so modern. The architecture up there, and the darkness and the blackness against the white of the snow, um, and how the people are positioned. It's just like really well, kind of kind of choreographed, and it was just really pleasing on the eye. And like, there's just lots of like little details like that where I'm like, oh, this was a really well-made film. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I actually I agree with that. And also, I love the fact that they had the genius behind John Doe being a strong female back in the forties. Like, oh, exactly, definitely. And she doesn't take any prisoners. You know, she goes in and has a go at her boss. She throws things through his window. That poor man trying to write. Oh, I felt on the so door. sorry for him. <laughs> That, and, I, at the beginning, um, I was like, "Oh, I don't know if I like her." Oh, she like she already like pushed yeah. him out the way, he, and then she like yeah. threw something through it. I was like, "Oh God!" Yeah, but she stands up for herself. Yeah, and then you know she not only takes her job back, but she kind of does this kind of wager where it's like, "You're going to give me this amount of money, or I will tell everyone that this is not real." Yeah. She knows where her power is. Yes, and. She, although she's not always doing the right thing at the beginning, she is doing the right thing for her family, trying to feed them. Yes, and also she uses her the power that she has, which is her intelligence. uh, Yes, in the same way that all of yes, in the same way that all the men around her are using their their power to just gain more power and and money. She uses it and actually creates this movement that does a lot of good for America. Yeah, and I think it's really important of thinking about when this film was released and when, uh, you know, what had just previously happened before uh, this. So this is 1941. This is right on the cusp of um, America entering the Second World War. Uh, but you also have the fact that it's not that far off the 1930s. And, of course, at the beginning of the 1930s and through a lot of that decade, there was great deprivation because of the Great Depression. Um, so you had a lot of people. That's why um, Gary Cooper's character it comes just asking for a job because there are none. That's why um, she is uh, losing her job initially at the beginning because the readership's not up because people aren't buying the, re- uh, the newspapers because they perhaps can't afford it. So although we don't see it, it's not at the height of the pr- depression um, when this is kind of film slash set, um, it's. You can see, you know, how that might influence the story um, and why perhaps America needs this story of people coming together, people standing up for themselves and not letting power corrupt uh, because it was power, i.e. the stock people with the stock markets and stuff that ruined their lives for many years yes um and then you know the fact that you should be coming together not only to help each other out when you're in need 
but of course, you know, patriot, uh, patriotically coming together to support each other and support your country in the war. I, I don't think you can miss that just be, because of when it was released. I think that's really important if you think about the, um, I, I would assume the zeitgeist at the moment, the timing, the atmosphere at the moment, that those would be central messages to send across as well as it fitting really nicely and neatly into a Christmas message of helping each other out. Yeah, and I, and they did, you can tell throughout the whole film that it is very like America centric. Like it's on top of obviously all of the other aspects of the film where it's like goodwill to all man and like help each other, love thy neighbor, all of that, whatever. Yeah. Throughout the whole thing, like they said about how it gives you like feelings in different places, like the back of your neck and stuff when you hear the American national anthem and you know, it's it's very much America centric, which obviously yeah. is what you need if you're rallying troops to go to war to fight sure. for their and country. It's very much Frank Capra's style as well to have very wholesome stories that are very they they don't criticize America, they criticize the systems within uh, communities and, and, and mainly the powers that be. Well yeah, because you can still you can still love your country and hate be critical of it. aspects of it or be critical of the way it's gone. Because your yeah. your politicians or your capitalist regime or whatever doesn't take away from your feelings about your country as a whole. No, and if anything this movie is about the pride in your country because it's the people of the country or the majority of the people of the country, the, the poor people or the people who are just getting by, those are the people that form these communities. These are the people that come together to try and make their community better to help each other out, not the politicians. No. And so they are the ones <laughs> they, they are the ones that kind of uh, are the heart of America. Yeah, absolutely. And that is something to be celebrated. Of course, and that's what having pride or love for your country is. It's not having pride or love for the one person that's the figurehead or the group of rich white men who are running it. It's your everyday American, and that's the story that they're telling you. Yes, and it's how the everyday American or the everyday person, if you want to kind of take the story or this message outside of America, how the everyday person can come together um, to both support and protect people in their community and how that actually makes your country a better place. And can t- change the narrative of the whole country. Like if you exactly. keep being downtrodden... Now, this is not saying, just to clarify here, this is not saying that if you are sh- constantly shat upon and downtrodden that it's your own fault. Oh, of course not. And that you can just fix it if you stand up. But it is showing that coming together and fighting for your rights and helping each other can make a difference oh definitely because i think that if the john doe movement had continued i think that it was definitely becoming in some ways a threat to the power of the people in charge because all these people were taking charge of their own lives and their own narratives and fighting for a better country that did not involve being curtailed by a politician and what they want to do but taking it into their own hands about what they want the communities to stand for and what they want their communities to look like and how they want to help and protect the people in those communities. And I think sometimes when we get so kind of caught up on the specific politics and the specific things that people say, or that even groups say, we forget about the power we have in our own backyard, and that actually, if we do help each other out, if we do look to protect each other from being persecuted or, you know, 
villainized or mistreated if we protect those people who are usually more vulnerable people in society um not always but sometimes that is the case then that's going to make for a better country for a better society um and though and that you can harness some power in making that change absolutely and also that the the way one of the ways they went about doing it was by giving each other jobs and helping each other financially which doesn't have to be a huge amount but so much power is held up in money and if you take away the some of the power that that has by sharing it out yeah then it takes away the power from the top exactly and this is where we're stemming much more towards the fear of communism spreading into the media that was later criticized in the 1950s and the House on American Activities Committee. So uh, Frank Capra, did he get before them? So after a little bit of research, uh, it seems like uh, perhaps Capra was a conservative or Republican and had perhaps more far right leanings, weirdly, because I would never have pitched it as that, but his writers were perhaps more liberal uh, which is very intriguing because I wouldn't have thought you'd be able to make quite so many films as he did that had such a leftist, sometimes accused of being too socialist or communist kind of films uh, with you know those sorts of messages from somebody who was maybe swinging from the other side of the political spectrum. Anyway, I think like this is a really odd Christmas film. I think it's one that bizarrely, despite its dark tones at so many different points, is very, it still gives me those Christmassy vibes. Still gives me that very kind of heartwarming moment despite those very dark topics sometimes so i just feel like it's probably one of the more interesting christmas films in terms of of how complex it is in terms of writing that line between tones and messages normally they're much more happy 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 kind of uh or, or sin- really really sincere and i feel like this is has that sincerity but it is coupled with this darkness that you can't escape uh, literally because uh, it's filmed in black and white. So as soon as it is ever dark, it's very dark. So you have um, these kind of uh, images that kind of correspond to some of the darker themes of, of the story as well. But it's really a very different take on Christmas than a lot of other films that I've seen. Yeah, and I do think especially, and I know this is like a weird point for it to feel very Christmassy, but when at the end... John Doe is up on the roof about to jump to his death. Mm. It's so snowy and it just feels very Christmassy. It feels very yeah. like beautiful Christmas Eve night yes. with this horrifically dark message under it. And I just think that that played yeah. through the whole film. As much as the timeline did confuse me for a little bit because I was like, it mentioned Christmas. It's obviously a Christmas movie. Why the fuck is Christmas? Um, <laughs> yes. But yeah, I did think that it played throughout the whole film, that Christmassy spirit with this very sinister, dark undertone. Um, and mm. I think that that last, the final scene played that very well. Like it kind of summed the whole movie up in one scene. Definitely. I think that it, the complexity of, of these different tones in the story make the film still work so many years later. Yeah, I agree. And the fact that we are still doing the same thing to this day. Oh, we never learn. No, exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, it's, Great. And, you know, to this day, he still wouldn't be able to get his elbow fixed in America. Well, that's true. 
That is true. I'd like to think, though, that people could rally behind a movement, movement like the John Doe movement and come together to support their communities. I'd like to think that that's still possible, even in such a divided time as we live in, that there is always that innate nature in humans that they want to help each other. Well, I think it's we just, saw I guess, the definition that. of how you help each other yeah. can be different. I do think we saw that a little bit through the like Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, Black Lives Matter. I think we saw some rallying around and community getting behind and trying to figure out ways where we can raise up maybe minorities' voices. Sure. Um, so I think we definitely still see today how we can have those movements. Yeah, but I was I was definitely glad that you chose, because I would never have watched this film, because uh, honestly I hadn't even yeah. heard of it uh, before you said to watch it. So uh, yeah, I was glad you you, uh, you put this film in here, especially because I just didn't, I didn't have a clue what to expect going in, because I, I didn't look it up again before watching it. I just wanted to go in with a blank yeah. slate again, which I like with films that I haven't heard of that you suggest. Yeah. I like just going in blank slate. And I, from Meet John Doe, obviously my brain immediately went true crime. Um, and then when it wasn't that, I was like immediately involved in the political side of it. Yeah, I liked the message behind it. I liked the fact that it's still relevant today. I mean, I didn't like that, but I liked that it was. And although I did think at, at times it was slow moving. Yeah, some old films are. I was I was quite surprised when I put this on again that it was two hours. Um, <laughs> yes. Because that's not that common unless it's like um, an epic or like a Western sometimes. They could be a bit longer for my or a war film. But um, I would say from this type of film, but yeah, I guess actually... I'm saying that. I'm pretty sure It's a Wonderful Life is about two hours as well. Yeah. So maybe it's just Frank Capra uh, likes a long movie. But uh, he could have uh, sped up some moments. But I don't think it detracts from the story. It's, it's just that if you're watching it, expecting it to last a certain amount of time, it might last a little bit longer. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And don't you worry, guys, because we will not be going to the 1940s um, <laughs> next week. We will instead be doing period dramas. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> We're still in the past. Um, yeah, well, actually, yeah, we, we are in the past, just filmed in the modern time. Exactly, exactly. Although, so if I um, must say, you are staying true to form of either being stuck in the 40s or the 90s. Yes, I am. That's just like, it's my sweet spot, okay? It's my sweet spot. So you'll have to follow us on Instagram at Heavenly Features Pod to find out what films we will be watching next week and we hope you can join us yeah absolutely and please rate review and subscribe uh, it really does help guys thank you for listening to this week's episode of heavenly features we are at heavenly features pod on instagram and heavenly features pod on youtube and we are heavenly feats pod on letterboxd and twitter uh, head over to our Instagram and Twitter and give us a follow if you want to watch along with us. We'll be announcing what films we'll be talking about the next week. And please rate, review and subscribe. This podcast was brought to you by 18 Maiden Lane Productions.